This is the Pleasant View Sermons Podcast for the week of May 23rd, 2021. This week's sermon, Christ's Second Coming. And now, here's Brother Stephen Beatty. Glad to have everyone here this morning. Uh, We're missing a couple. Remember them in prayer. We pray they'll be back in a couple of weeks. And we're going to continue this morning in our discussion on Bible prophecy. And um, I admit these messages have been fairly lengthy, but there is so much material to try to pack in into one service that sometimes we have to continue over. And that's what we're doing this week. This week, we're going to talk about this coming of Jesus Christ, his second coming, and what a beautiful picture that is, Christ's second coming. In 1961, just a few days before President-elect John F. Kennedy was inaugurated into office, he invited evangelist Billy Graham to join him at Key Biscayne, Florida, for a few days of little R&R, rest and relaxation, and some golf. I, you may think that's relaxation. I think that's torture, pl- playing golf. I tried it once and didn't work out too well. That's not relaxation, but to them it was, okay? And the invitation surprised Billy Graham for a couple of reasons. Um, one was because of John F. Kennedy's uh, disinterest in spiritual matters, and number two, uh, Billy Graham knew he didn't care for, JFK didn't care for him very much at all. But during their time uh, there of some rest and relaxation, when uh, JFK still had his driving privileges. One particular afternoon, they were finishing up with golf, and they were on their way back to the, uh, the home there where he was staying. Um, Kennedy pulled over his white Lincoln on the side of the road and shut off the engine, and, and Billy Graham asked him, is everything okay? And, and John F. Kennedy looked at him and said, Billy, do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth one day? And Billy Graham looked at him and said, Mr. President-elect, yes, I sure do. Jesus Christ is coming back. And JFK asked him, then why do I hear so little about about him today? You know, the fact is Jesus coming back to earth one day is, even though we we talk about it all the time, and it's so much prophesied in the Bible, it's one of the best kept secrets in the world of Christ's second coming. You don't hear it talking about, in future news, Christ is returning. We don't hear that at all whatsoever. Yet over and over again, I just said in Scripture, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, even Christ prophesied that he was going to come back again one day to reclaim what's rightfully his this, in this broken world. And it's, this, and it's this particular event, the most important event that's still to come in human history, in Bible prophecy, Christ's second coming. Now, remember remember the timeline, and I should have had Daniel put it up again. I didn't think about it, but, uh, you know, we know that there are going to be three things that are going to happen preceding Christ's return. And if you look at Revelation 19, at Christ's second coming, and how it's far different than the rapture, we're going to talk about that this morning, the three things that are leading up to his return. We're going to also look at the question, so what? What difference does it make if Jesus Christ is returning again one day? So if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, 
probably pretty much on the screen. We're going to be primarily in Revelation chapter 16 this morning. We're going to review the preceding events to Christ's return. Now remember, earlier in our discussion in Bible prophecy, Genesis chapter 12, over 4,000 years ago, God came to Abraham and he told Abraham, I'm going to use you as a catalyst for the redemption of mankind. And God said through you, Abraham, I'm going to use you in a mighty way. He made a promise with him that he was going to uh, make a promise through all the nations of the world. Through you, Abraham, would be blessed. And remember in Psalm 59, the psalmist said, even, even if Abraham's descendants or even David's descendants would be unfaithful, and they would be unfaithful, that God was sti would still be faithful in fulfilling this promise. It was an unconditional promise. We reviewed that. Now, the question is, when would this promise be fulfilled? It's a question especially of great interest 1,500 years ago. During exile of the Babylonian exile, Daniel and others asked him, God, what about this promise? Have you forgot about us? We're here in exile. We don't see nothing being fulfilled. When are you going to fulfill this promise that you gave to our ancestors? You know, they thought that they had been forgotten about. And remember, the prophet Daniel had asked him, when are you going to do this? And in Daniel chapter 9, God said to him, that there was going to be 490 years that God was going to finally fulfill all of his, his dealings with the believing Israel. And we looked at that stopwatch. I told you, visualize God's uh, holy stopwatch in heaven and that the 490 years would be divided up into two sections. Majority of it, 483 years have already elapsed. And that stopwatch stopped when Messiah was cut off, the Bible says, and he was Christ was crucified. And at that point, the stopwatch stopped, and we have seven final years that have not happened yet versus what other people, preterists, want to think it's already happened. No, it hasn't happened yet. Um, the redemption of mankind and the restoration of the, of the world would be during this time. It would be at final seven years that God would deal with Israel one more time. And right now, we're living in that gap between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And there are three significant events that are taking place during this gap between Christ's first and second coming. Number one is the church age. The church age, okay? Remember Bible prophecy in that outline? After Christ's resurrection and 40 days later, His ascension, 10 days later, the Spirit, Holy Spirit, that Jesus promised the Helper would come on that day, that great day of Pentecost. That day was the birth of the church of Jesus Christ. It's a time when God would temporarily turn away from Israel because he, even Jesus himself tried to get them to accept him as Messiah. They said, no, we're looking for someone to literally save us from Roman oppression. So God, the Bible says temporarily, not permanently, has turned his back on Israel so that you and I and people, fellow Gentiles can have a chance at salvation it is being part of this promise. And remember, Paul said that Romans eleven twenty five that Israel right now has a partial hardening in their heart towards Messiah. But it's a partial hardening. It's just temporary, okay? Number two, the, another event that would happen during this gap would be the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church has not happened yet. It's imminent. It could happen before we leave here today, and we wouldn't get no Kentucky Fried Chicken in a couple of weeks. We would enjoy the blessings of heaven. The heck with that chicken. But the rapture hasn't happened yet. It can happen at any moment, and we'll be with him in glory. 
And once that occurs, that stopwatch will start for the final time after the rapture of the church, beginning those last seven years of human history. And then number three, the great tribulation still has to happen. Daniel 9.27 gives us that outline. It's a week of years, seven years. Antichrist will make that peace treaty with Israel sometime after the rapture of the church, and the world is in complete turmoil because the church is gone, and the spirit through the representation of the church is gone, and the people are clamoring, looking for somebody who can say, I've got the answer to world peace. And he, he signs that peace treaty with Israel. But we know, as we studied before, halfway through at the three-and-a-half-year period, Antichrist and the false prophet are going to turn their back on the church. They're going to turn their, turn their back on Israel and begin unrelenting persecution those last three-and-a-half years. It's not only those last three-and-a-half years, a time of Antichrist a persecution on the world. It's a time of God pouring out his judgment on the world simultaneously. The Great Tribulation has two purposes, to pour out his wrath upon unbelievers, and also Israel. he's given Israel and everyone else one last opportunity to be saved. That's the kind of God we serve. He doesn't want to see anyone perish, but everyone to come to have everlasting life. Now, we talked about the first three and a half years are relatively going to be peaceful, okay? You'll have some things going on, but relatively, everybody's going to be happy. Man, this is, this is just wonderful. This is just great. Then Antichrist will turn his back on Jews and Gentiles. And in the last three and a half years, majority of God's judgments, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments are all poured out on portions of the earth. The bowl judgments are poured out on the entire world. Now, the question is, this, is, this was all reviewed until now. What's going to be the reaction of the world during this time? Have you ever heard the maxim that whoever calls the shots, they take the shots? We understand that in business. Any place you work, you have an employer, you have supervisors. If they're in charge, if things go wrong, who gets the blame for it? They do. They get the blame for it. Our previous president took a lot of, a lot of um, credit for the stock market, and some of his policies did help the stock market go to record highs. But I always said if it, something was to happen and it dramatically went down, he'd have to take responsibility for it too as well. But that's what's happening here, something very similar. He, the great, this world great dictator is going to be all of a sudden accused of all of these judgments. They don't see them as judgments. Uh, financial peril and natural disasters are going to happen. That he has subjugate, subjugated all these nations and leaders to follow him. And imagine what these last three and a half years are going to be like. I said financial problem, political turmoil, people are being persecuted, natural disasters. The world forces of the East are going to have enough of Antichrist. His, his reign is, is he's, he's seen as being in a weakened state because of all the natural disasters. And then I got to thinking, he's going to be ultimately responsible, they're going to say, for climate change. That's why all this is happening. You haven't done enough for climate change. They changed you from global warming to climate change. Antichrist, or whatever his name, this man's name will be, you haven't done enough to stop all these natural disasters from happening, from climate change from stopping. We, they couldn't build enough uh, um, uh, wind and solar and electric cars to help appease this problem. And then they're gonna, they've had enough of him. They're going to want to wage war and take over and overthrow him in his power. 
The Bible says the world forces are going to mount a revolt, a challenge to Antichrist and his power. And that's what sets up this war of Armageddon. Really, during these last three and a year, three and a half years, it's not just one climactic battle. That happens at the end, the battle of Armageddon, but it's really there's multiple different stages of the war of Armageddon that leads to this final climactic battle. Now we here we have the world forces, they're tired of Antichrist and they're ready to try and overtake him. They've had enough of his rule. And that's where we come to in Revelation 16, the battle of Armageddon. Look at Revelation 16 and verse 13. John says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Look like little kermits coming out, little frogs. Now, we talked about in Sunday school, I mentioned Satan is a copycat of everything God does. This, did you realize just like there is a Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this verse here describes a satanic trinity. The dragon, that's Satan. Then you've got the beast, the power coming from the dragon to the beast, the antichrist, and the false prophet. That's the satanic trinity. That's what we have here. He is a masterful copycat. John says he saw three unclean spirits like little kermits, frogs coming out of them. Now let's look at verses 14 and 16. For the for they are spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Verse 16, and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. This satanic trinity that John described in verse 13 is going to try to lure all the kings of the world together in one place for battle. Now, why in the world would Antichrist do that? It's very simple. If he can get them together all in one place, he can destroy them. Okay? He can destroy them. That's why I don't believe that we, we hear more and more about our artificial intelligence. And they could play a part in military down the road. I don't think there will ever not be a need for foot soldiers. Because foot soldiers are what gather your people together in one place so you can try to take them out. Antichrist cannot get to all the world forces throughout the world if they're scattered thousands and thousands of miles apart. He can't get them all at one time, okay? So he has to gather them together in one place in order to do what he thinks he's going to do is take them out and destroy them. This is what we're going to uh, this is what we have going on here in Revelation 16. From the Antichrist perspective, he wants them together so that he can destroy them. But 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 from God's point of view, he can do it without doing this, but God's going to say, okay, you want to copycat me? I'll just, I'll show you with my power. He's gathering all the world forces together along with the beast and the false prophet all in one place so that he can smite the nations. That's what God is doing here. You know, the text says it's the evil spirits that lead the world forces to the plain of Megiddo. But yet we're also saying God's leading them there. Well, which is it? The answer is both. It's both happened simultaneously. Remember the story in 1 Kings? God sent an evil spirit to cause evil King Ahab. Remember that guy? King Ahab to mount an attack against the city of Ramoth Gilead. Um, the direct cause of the attack was a demon, but the ultimate cause was God. It's just like the comment Martin Luther said, even the devil is God's devil. 
there's nothing or no one that God won't use to fulfill his purpose, even demonic forces as well. He is ultimately responsible for everyone coming to this place, the plain of Megiddo, the place of Armageddon. This plain of Megiddo was site of some of the most famous battles in the Old Testament, Baruch and the Canaanites, Gideon and the Mennonites. Napoleon, remember him, and through studying through school, Napoleon looked at this vast valley and said, this is the greatest natural battlefield in all of the world. I wonder why that is, because this is the place that God has set in place for that final climactic battle. Now look at verse 17. Now while, while these world forces are gathering together in the plain of Megiddo to wage war against Antichrist, at this point, God's final judgment comes on the earth. Look at verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out of his pole upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. This is, this is that final bold judgment that are, is poured out upon the entire world. But this last bowl is poured out, it says, in the air. Notice that, the air. I believe John is describing here is what could very well be a nuclear explosion in the air. Something that happens in the air with great destructive force. Think, think of this force of a nuclear weapon. Now, there are some facts about a nuclear weapon, okay? Now, bear with me just a minute. Um, at one point, a rudimentary nuclear bomb used to be one kiloton. That's a thousand tons of explosives, all right? Just think, if one rudimentary bomb had went off, the terrorist of 9-11 had detonated just one rudimentary bomb, this is what would have happened. It would have killed most of the residents of Manhattan and Staten Island and Brooklyn. The United Nations, the New York Stock Exchange, and all three or four of the major network uh, broadcasters would have been destroyed. That's just with one rudimentary nuclear weapon. Now today, they've become much more advanced. They are much more advanced today. They're not a, they are now 100 kiloton in size, not one. That's 100,000 tons of explosives. If you took 1,000 1, of these present-day nuclear devices and they were to be detonated at the same time, you know you can destroy the entire world with just 1,000 of them. The United States has reported, and I could be wrong, this may be kind of outdated, that they have enough nuclear weapons to destroy the world 19 times. And it's also reported that Russia has enough nuclear weapons in their arsenal to destroy the world 29 times. Now, can't you see how an altercation in the Middle East, now we see stuff going on right now. There are, they don't dare. Well, no, Hamas doesn't have this kind of resource. I'm sure Israel has some nuclear weapons. If they dare ignite one, then everyone else who's got them is going to ignite them, and then you've got a world, you've got nuclear warfare on your hands. But can't you see how an attack like this, perhaps is Iran, I think they're behind this, and then ultimately there's other countries who are financing Iran to get this job done because they hate Israel, they want Israel off of the map. Can't you see where this could start into a nuclear exchange when Israel is being attacked by a bigger player than just Hamas? I believe that's what's happening here. John saw this judgment poured out in the air. Now notice the result. Look at verses 18 through 20. John says, And there was flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. 
The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. I believe this was a nuclear exchange that we're seeing here. Whatever this exchange is, it's just a prelude to the main event. And that is the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at Revelation 19. And as the world forces, they're battling a plain of Megiddo. They're going at each other. Suddenly the heavens are open and look at what happens. Night, Revelation 19 verses 11 through 13. John says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. As these world forces are doing battle, suddenly they're startled. They see the eastern sky open. I bet they stop battling because they're going to, every one of them are going to see what's about to happen. The clouds part, and who is it? The Lord Jesus Christ is there. And they see Christ. He's not alone, is he? He's not alone. We're going to get into that. Notice the appearance of the church as well. Look at verse 14. John says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Who is this army that's following Christ from heaven back to earth? It is all of you. It is me. It's every Christian listening out there. We're going to return with Jesus at that final moment, that great battle. How do I know? Go back to verse, verse 8. John is describing what happens in heavens just before Christ's second coming. What's happening? You and I, we're getting dressed for the event, aren't we? I'll get to the verse in just a second. I got a little bit in there between. We're getting ready for this great event. We're getting ready for it because... As soon as Christ comes to earth and judges unbelievers and sends them into hell, the first thing that happens, it may be days, weeks, it could be months, he's setting up his millennial reign, his thousand-year reign on this earth for that great wedding feast. We're going to be dressed up. We won't, we won't have to have bibs on to protect our perfectly white linen. We're going to be eating at that marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a celebration. We're all going to join. And in Revelation 19, 8, it says we're getting ready for this great event. Look at what he says. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, we've all been to weddings, haven't we? For the most part, people, the bride and groom, dressed in their finest. They're not going to look like me, you know, they're going to dress in their finest, the most beautiful white gown and the best-looking tux that you can think of. Most people dress in their finest. The Bible says in heaven, before, before we, the bride of Christ, return with him to reign, we're going to get dressed for that occasion. We're going to get dressed for it. We're going to dress in our finest clothes, white linen, which represents our righteous acts. That's what we may be putting on for that marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, you say, but wait a minute, you know, our good works, we haven't we been taught that good works are meaningless? Well, 
No, not at all they're not meaningless. God's works are meaningless when it comes to salvation. Amen? We don't, our righteousness is that like, like that of a filthy rag, a filthy, nasty, uh, infested rag. That's what our righteousness represents. But our works matter very much after we've accepted Christ as Savior, haven't they? Our works matter very much. You know, when we become Christians, God takes that righteousness of Jesus Christ and he wraps it all around us. We're kind of like that. We're kind of wrapped up in that fine linen and mummified. But what we did have, our unrighteousness, when we're saved, God takes Christ's righteousness and wraps it all over us from head to toe. Not seeing our flaws, but seeing the righteous acts of Jesus. Think of that righteous act of God as putting on our inner garment. And once we have Christ's righteousness wrapped around us, then we put on those righteous acts. That means the obedience of Christ. And those good works we do after we save, like I said, they are very important. Our obedience in Christ determines the kind of heaven we're going to have one day. Did you know that heaven's not going to be the same for everyone? It's not going to be. It's not going to be uh, like a so everybody's treated all the same and, and you know everybody gets the same amount. No, 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 not at all. There are going to be degrees of heaven. What level of heaven that we get is determined by our, our works after we are saved. And that's what we're talking about when we come back with him wrapped in fine linen. We are, we are wrapped in a righteous acts. There will be an appearance of Christ, the appearance of the church. And third is the defeat of Christ's enemies. Look at verse 19 in chapter 19 of Revelation. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Here are all the world forces that are doing battle against Antichrist. Suddenly Christ appears, and we're with him. And, they be, and all of a sudden, these people who were doing battle with each other suddenly become friends because they see the Lord Jesus Christ coming with the church, and they're going to turn around and wage war against him. Now, you may be thinking, you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not sure about that. You know, I'm, I'm going to be coming back uh, on horseback and with the Savior leading the way, I'm not sure I'm ready to ride on horseback and come back through the air to the earth and do battle. You know, if you want horse lessons, we'll get with Jennifer and Stanley. We can get started now. And we got a, a couple of horses and a pony there. We can learn how to do horseback. No, it's not going to be that at all. We're going to be perfect in our glorified bodies. Nothing is going to hurt us after that point, much less we're really just coming along to watch what Jesus is going to do to his enemies. There's nothing we have to do whatsoever. We're just going along for the ride. Like a great roller coaster, you get to the very top and then you look, you, uh-oh, here it comes, a descent, we're coming down. You know, we know, though, that we're not going to feel that way in heaven when we come back to this earth at all. Our defeat of Christ's enemies has nothing to do with my strength or your strength or anyone else's. It has everything to do with the power of God. Look at Revelation 19, verses 15 and verse 21. How are these enemies slain? From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Devastating, isn't it? Ooh, just imagine that. Imagine that. All the birds are not going to go hungry that day. God, with a simple word, 
defeats his enemies. And that's what happened at the second coming of Christ. The appearance of, the, the appearance of Christ, the appearance of the church, the defeat of his enemies. And many people believe, though, that the second coming of Christ and the rapture are the same. We're gonna, I'm going to list, and he's going to list, eight different re- differences in these two time periods. Yes, there are, there are some words used in Scripture that describe the rapture as well as the second coming, they're the same, many of them are the same words, specifically three key Greek words used to describe both the rapture and the second coming. Number one, parousia, that means coming or arrival. Number two, apocalypsis, what's that sound like? Apocalypse, revelation, people were afraid. You know, they say, ooh, the apocalypse is something scary. No, it's not, unless you're an unbeliever. The apocalypse is just the revelation. That's what revelation stands for, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. That's all it means. Number three, epiphania means manifestation. Now, just a reminder that just because that two things are similar doesn't mean that they're the same thing, okay? You know, you take just because two things are similar doesn't mean they're the same thing. A quick example, you have a motor in a car and a motor in a washing machine. How are they similar? They both have motors, but they have completely two different functions, don't they? Just because two things are similar doesn't mean that they're the same thing. They, these are different events. They involve the coming of the Lord, the unveiling of Christ's glory, and unveil the appearance of Christ. Let's look at eight ways the rapture and second coming are different. Number one, no prophecies are necessary for the rapture, but many are required for the second coming, okay? Regarding of Israel and the promised land, that's already been, that's already occurred, you know, they're, they're, they've got their nation and they're all moving back for that great purpose, and as well as rebuilding of the temple. That hasn't happened yet, but the works we discussed uh, weeks and weeks ago, those plans are in place for a third temple. There has to be a third temple, during the Great Tribulation. Number two, Christ appears in the air at the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, we'll be caught up to meet him where? In the air. He doesn't come down to the earth, not until the second coming. Zechariah 14.4 says, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So that half of the mountain will move toward the east and the other half toward the south. We did that earlier in our public reading. Jesus at his second coming is going to actually plant his feet at the Mount of Olives, the precise exact spot where he left in Acts chapter 1, his ascension. Jesus is returning one day to plant his feet on this earth. Number three, Jesus returns with believers at returns with believers at the rapture and then in the air, but then he returns to earth with believers at his second coming. He, the rapture is in the air. Second coming, he returns. We return with him on the earth. Number four, the rapture is a mystery. The rapture is a mystery. I probably left that off, didn't I? I don't know. Anyway, it is a mystery. What I mean is it never was talked about in the Old Testament. Jesus never mentioned the rapture in his earthly ministry. Paul had the job of revealing the mystery of the church and the end of the church age. The second coming is prophesied throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Number five, after the rapture, only believers are judged. The judgment, the bema seat, 
The judgment seat of Christ, I believe this is when it's going to happen. Because remember, when we come back with him on white horse, we're going to be dressed in the righteous acts of God because we're going to get what we are rewards for what we did on this earth. At the second coming, Israel and Gentile believers are going to be judged. Number six, after the rapture, there will be a, there is, I'm going to move it ahead. There is no physical change to the earth. But after the second coming, there will be partial renovations done to the earth. Number seven, after the rapture, Satan continues to work. Even more so, even more feverishly, he knows his time is cut short. He's a, to be exact, seven more years. He knows most of his work is coming to an end. Now, at number eight, at the rapture, only believers will see Christ. But at his second coming, everyone is going to see Jesus. It's prophesied in Zechariah 12.10, Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. Look at this. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will see the manifestation of Jesus at his second coming. Now, here we go. Here's the question you may ask out there, why is this all important? What difference does it make if Jesus Christ is coming to this earth again one day? There's a story of a young man he told years ago. He was on his way to his church on an Easter Sunday morning. He was particularly excited because he was going to get to listen to Billy Graham give the Easter message. And he was very ramped up. But on his way, his girlfriend, who lived a good distance away, was with her family at her church on Easter Sunday. And so on the way, he decided to turn on the radio. Back then, he, he could get his girlfriend's sermons on a local radio station in that area. And this church had a very, very liberal leftist pastor. He didn't believe in the deity of Jesus. He didn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. He didn't believe in heaven or hell. He didn't believe Christ was the only way to be saved. He didn't even believe in the second coming. It makes you wonder what in the world was he doing standing behind a pulpit, you know? And on his way, he turned on the radio and he listened, and this is what his pastor said. He caught the end towards the end of his message. He says, for 2,000 years, people have been looking for and expecting Jesus to come back to earth. He hasn't come yet, and he is not coming. He said, the first time Jesus come, came was when he came to Bethlehem. The second time when he comes is when he comes into your heart. That was the Easter message that that liberal pastor gave on that Sunday morning. That makes me think of a very important verse, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Peter said, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. People today, they mock the idea of Christ coming back again one day. Peter said it would be that like that in the last days. Look at verses 8 and 9. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as come as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to 
repentance. The only reason Jesus Christ hasn't come back yet to, is for people to repent and be saved. He is giving people one last chance. Why is it important to believe in a little return of Christ? Three reasons this morning in closing. Number one, to fulfill the prophecies of the Bible. There are over 1,800 Old Testament prophecies of his second coming, and it seems the New Testament, you can't turn a page in the New Testament without there be a, this simple statement, Christ is coming, Christ is coming, Jesus Christ is coming again. If Christ doesn't come at his second coming, one day it means that those hundreds of prophecies will be unfulfilled. And if those prophecies are left unfulfilled, it means the Bible cannot be trusted. That's exactly what it would mean. Number two, to judge unbelievers in this sinful world. We look at everything going on today. Shootings, rapings, murder, innocent people being locked up for no reason, volatility in the overseas, Christians being martyred, and you might think, God, why are you allowing all this to happen? Why is all this happening? The Bible says unbelievers are storing up wrath day after day after day. Wrath that one day is going to be unleashed against the world under the leadership of the Antichrist. But Christ is coming back one day to judge this fallen world, isn't he? Isaiah eleven four. he says, But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. He's coming to fulfill prophecies of the Bible. He's coming to judge believers at this sin, of this sinful world. Number three, and most importantly, to reclaim what's rightfully his, this earth. Genesis chapter three, we see how sin came and just ruined everything, didn't it? What was known as, known as paradise to God was lost. But guess what? It's only temporary loss, isn't it? It's only temporary lost. Listen to me. If there is no second coming, think of this. If there's only a rapture and God raptures out the church and there is no second coming of Jesus Christ, think of this. It would be like God saying, okay, Satan, you've won. I'll stay up here in my corner of the universe with all my beloved children while you stay on your corner of the, of the universe, planet Earth, with all unbelievers. Do you think God is going to let that happen? Only a fool would believe something like that. There is no way after God took all the time in six days to create everything to give it up to Satan. No way. Absolutely not. God created this world perfectly, but because of the fall of man, that paradise was temporarily lost. But one day, God's going to make it all right. One more time, isn't he? That's why the second coming is so important to reclaim and create, recreate this sin-filled world. There's a story. This is so beautiful. We're almost done. There's a story um, of a janitor that's sitting in a gymnasium. He's waiting for all these college boys at a seminary school to finish with their basketball practice so they can go get showered and he can clean the floor and then clean the locker room when they're done. And as they were finishing up, they saw that one particular student was walking up off the gymnasium and he seen a janitor setting up in so, so far up in the bleachers. And he noticed he was reading the Bible. 
and he said, out of curiosity, he asked him, uh, what are you reading in the Bible? And he said, Janitor, I'm reading the book of Revelation. And it drew even more interest because that's where the, that particular young man was studying in, in the seminary, the book of Revelation. He knew how parts of it was so complicated. And he said, so, he said, sir, tell me, do you understand what you're reading? What does it mean? He said, yes, sir, I understand what it means. He said, this is what it means. Jesus is going to win. Jesus is going to win. Right now, it doesn't look like it, does it? That Jesus is winning it all. With everything going on, we can list thing one thing after another after another. We see it in the headlines, the papers, internet, all the time. All the stuff going on. Sadness and broken relationships, disease and even death. What we see and what we feel is very real. But it's also very, very temporary, isn't it? The Bible says one day Jesus is going to win. He's going to come one day to reclaim what's rightfully his and what was lost. The apostle John saw him. He saw that day and he looked forward to it. In closing, he said in Revelation eleven fifteen, Then the seventh angel sounded and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Amen and amen. Let's bow together in prayer this morning. That day is coming, ladies and gentlemen. If you're listening and you are not a follower of Christ, if you're not a Christian, that day is coming. Christ is coming to reclaim this world that is under evil control right now. He is on a very long leash, but he's very limited. God's going to have enough one day, and he's going to say, Son, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return to reclaim what is rightfully his. You don't want to be left behind. We see all these things happening. And the rapture is imminent. And if the rapture happens at any moment now, that means Christ's second coming is that much closer. Seven years to be exact. That's what we've been talking about this whole time. The greatest event in human history is upon us. Things are getting so bad, I can't see how God could take so any more, much more of this rebellion against him and his creation. You may be at a point you don't know what else to do. This could be their calling card this morning. You could be listening to this message and not by accident. Maybe you've been listening to the other message. Maybe this is the first time you've listened, and we thank you so much for that. If it is, Jesus Christ is coming. The Bible has, been, has a 100% batting average on prophecy. Prophecies will be fulfilled that have not been fulfilled yet because God's Word says it's going to happen. Don't be left behind. You may feel like there's nothing else for you out there. Nothing else can help you. You can't forgive yourself. You're a sinful person. You need Jesus Christ as your Savior. The Holy Spirit, you'll know it. I felt it. We all felt that moment when God was calling us. He was calling our number. I want you to come with me and love me and serve me for the rest of your life as a believer, as a follower of Christ, as a Christian. You can have that opportunity if that Holy Spirit is working on you and you feel that guilt and you realize you need a Savior. You can pray this simple prayer of faith right now where you are. If you truly mean it and believe it in your heart, you can pray this simple prayer with me. Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know, God, I have 
failed you in so many ways, and I'm truly sorry for those sins in my life. But I believe what I have heard today, that you love me so much, you sent your son, Jesus, to die for my sins, not by any of my good, good works, but, but, why, but what Jesus did for me to save me from my sins. Thank you for loving me. Thank you so much for forgiving me. And I'm praying today that you will help me spend the rest of my life serving you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer and you really meant it with all your heart, you are a follower of Christ. You are a child of God. You are a Christian. And we welcome you. If you're here close and you don't have a church to get into, we welcome you here at, Ple welcome you here at Pleasant View Missionary Baptist. Our information is on our on our, on our uh, Facebook page. It's on our website, website pvbaptistchurch.org. We welcome anyone and everyone who's a follower of Christ. This is a place for sick people and in need, S-I-N-S. We're all sinful people, and we fail all the time. We need each other here, and you're going to want to give a testimony. Tell somebody of what Jesus did for you, and then get into a Bible-believing church because the journey just begins. Getting into God's Word will help you grow and be into a like-minded believer church like this one who teaches the whole counsel of God's Word. We don't cherry-pick things that make us feel good from time to time and with what the culture has. We preach all of God's Word, and it's so important that we teach that, that this is a sinful world and sin is nothing good. It's horrible in what it does to people. We welcome you here this morning and any time. Look us up on, on the Internet. Father God, I pray that no one this morning, no matter where they are, they don't have to be listening to this message. Maybe they're in some church. You've led them there. We pray that no one will resist your call of salvation. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been the Pleasant View Sermons Podcast. For more information about our church, including service times and videos of our latest sermons, visit our website at www.pvbaptistchurch.org.